This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. Leaders are talking about corporate culture and corporate fit. What is corporate culture? How do you build an effective culture? And what role does having the right corporate culture play in the success of a business? Today, my special guest is known for his work in developing powerful and effective corporate cultures and for sparking the innovation needed for sustained business success. Today, we will hear about his business successes and the role of his Christian faith at work. So let me tell you about Dr. Gene Early. He is a strategic advisor to global leaders, known as an entrepreneurially minded innovator in leadership and organizational development. He grows, develops, and transforms organizations. As an integrator of purpose and performance, he consults with senior leaders in Asia, Europe, and the U.S. to create strong organizational cultures. He also works with leading nonprofits in Australia, India, South Africa, and the U.S. to broaden and deepen their impact. Gene previously co-founded Genomic Health, a Silicon Valley molecular diagnostic company. A trailblazer in personalized medicine, Genomic Health produced the first genomic-based breast cancer diagnostic test. He was also responsible for envisioning and catalyzing a dynamic, people-oriented culture that Denison Consulting rated in the top 1% of their global company ratings. Other accomplishments include serving as Vice Chancellor of Operations at the University of the Nations, Kona, a global university with branch campuses in over 600 locations. Gene also co-founded the first NLP Neuro Linguistic Programming Institute in Europe to train professionals in sophisticated communication skills. He helped to develop NLP institutes in six European countries. His PhD is in leadership and organizational development, and he has authored numerous articles, books, and ebooks. So, welcome, Gene Early, to the Voice of Leadership and to Dr. Karen speaks leadership. Well, it's so good to be here, Dr. Karen. It's great seeing you again, and I look forward to our conversation. I look forward to it, too. Thank you so much for agreeing to join me today. What a delight and what a pleasure. I know you have a lot to share with the audience from your years of experience and expertise, not only with your own business endeavors, also those other companies that you've helped to develop along the way. So I'm looking forward to just jumping right in. Super. Yeah, well, let's do it. Where would you like me to start? All right, let's start with corporate culture. So what is corporate culture? Why is it so important? And how would you diagnose what's going on in our world today around corporate culture? That's a hefty question. I really like that question. I would say that, for example, 
corporate culture is to organizations as the, as personal character is to an individual. One of the ways that I think about it, for example, when we're at Genomic Health, one of our kind of driving purposes was to create, as you said, a people-friendly culture, one that where we could release the potential of scientists and technologists for the purpose of personalized medicine, and specifically in the case of the breast cancer diagnostic. And then the question becomes, of course, how do you do that? So I just, one of the examples that I like to share is that our uh, CEO and our chief medical officer very early on were at loggerheads around our vision. And one of the things we know about startups is that visions often pivot in the course of the development of a startup. We start with one idea and we kind of evolve into another one. And that's really what needed to happen because our chief medical officer, very experienced in the field, was trying to communicate to our CEO. And our CEO was very open. So it wasn't like there was a negative thing, but it was just they had two different opinions. So, for example, my role in that as the kind of the chief people officer was helping them to mediate that and actually come to resolution, which we did. And um, the effect of that was that we decided that we would be a bit more technical, not go direct to consumer, but rather position ourselves uh, with doctors and oncologists so that we would have that credibility in the marketplace and be able to have a gold standard product. So to me, that's a, that is an example of how you create culture is you create an environment where people can actually put on the table what's important to each of them and come to some joint resolution, not some top-down command and control idea. So it really sounds like vision is a real important part of this process. And what you helped those two leaders to do was to create that shared vision that you're talking about. What would have happened in the company had they maintained two separate visions? How would that have impacted corporate culture? I have a related story to that one. In working with the CEO of Genomic Health, my previous interaction with him was with Insight Genomics, which was another healthcare company. And he and the CEO there, the, my purpose for being with them as a consultant uh, was to roll out the second vision because they, they've been very successful with their first vision, which was basically um, developing genomic processes for uh, getting patents for pharmaceutical companies. And so that process um, evolved along with the technology. And they got to a place where we did roll out the second vision, but the CEO and our CEO for genomic health were at a, had difference of opinion. The CEO for Insight wanted to take it, take those patents into becoming a drug company, so leveraging the drug patents. Our CEO wanted to go to consumers. And so that became a bone of contention in a way. They were co-founders along with a number of others, but they had to resolve it. And the resolution was that Genomic Health CEO said, listen, you take the company, you go and do your thing uh, with making a drug company. I'm going to go because I want to go to the consumer world. And that, that you can imagine there was some tension in that. And I would say that you know, our CEO for Genomic Health had, had a lot of grace to be able to let go and say, I'm not going to split the company because, not surprisingly, leaders of the company embody the company. And here you had two leaders with different ideas about where they wanted to go. And employees in the company had 
kind of divided themselves according to those two visions. So if they had continued on, they could easily have destroyed the company. But instead of doing that, they were able to reach a, an amicable agreement. Our CEO became chairman of the board and went on to do more serial entrepreneur things. And then uh, the existing CEO took it on to become a drug company. So we, get, we kind of get both there. You can destroy a company with your culture or you can actually empower it. Yeah, and it sounds like it's really important to have a unity of purpose oh, and direction and vision, absolutely. and that's what you help them to achieve. And the bonus in this case is you had two great companies to come out of it as yeah. opposed to one destroyed company to come out of it, which is really an important component. So it sounds like vision is one of the things, unity and vision. And in fact, this reminds me of a Bible verse where it says, how can two people walk together unless they are agreed? You know, and that's, that's one of my favorite verses, absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's kind of like what you're talking about here. What else, in addition to vision, is part of crafting a real stellar corporate culture? I think one of the keys, no question, certainly in genomic health and in other places where I've, I've been privileged to work, is highlighting that people in the system have a voice. And so often in bureaucratic settings, people don't have a voice and they feel frustrated because they don't have a voice. And that, of course, impacts morale. And so putting in processes, performance management processes, how you run meetings, everything that involves communication. Uh, it's very significant for being able to hear people's voices. And so one of the things that I particularly love to emphasize is positive feedback. How do we establish, and particularly with today's technological world, it's very possible to do this. How do we establish real-time feedback so that people know where they are? And it's not like you get to your performance review and suddenly you, you're surprised because your manager is saying, well, you haven't lived up to my expectations. I mean, that is a very unfortunate circumstance. And that actually, that doesn't do well for the culture. Whereas when you get real-time feedback, it supports the morale of the company. And morale, I mean, that, clearly that's key. That's where your energy is in the company. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you want people to be engaged and you want them to feel as though they're valued and appreciated in the workplace. So tell us, Gene, a little bit about LeaderQuest, because you also did some work with LeaderQuest that's related to culture development as well. Oh, I love LeadersQuest. So I was in the process of co-founding Genomic Health, and I had a good friend named Lindsay Levin, uh, who I'd worked with in the UK when we lived in Europe. Uh, when I got to Silicon Valley, I was just kind of overwhelmed with the power of the culture of that region. The energy, the creativity, the buzz is like incredible. I mean, it's tangible. It's so real. And uh, she was in a stage where she was thinking of, I'm ready to kind of sell my family company that her father had founded. And I want to develop a leadership program of some sort where we could bridge the nonprofit world to the for-profit world. And I knew that because we've been talking about it, where she might go and what it might look like. I just reached out to her and said, listen, we got to bring these guys because I've been working with the Academy of Chief Executives in the UK. And she was part of that. Uh, we got to bring some of those guys over here to Silicon Valley. I mean, they have got to see this. So we organized the very first Leaders Quest uh, and it went to Silicon Valley of all places. And that really is about taking senior leaders on 
uh, learning journeys where they're exposed to multiple leading figures in industry and in governments, uh, in startups and nonprofits, and where innovation and really inspirational leadership functions. Um, so it's all about giving people insight and, and expanding their view of what's possible with the resources they have. Because they oftentimes we take them to a nonprofit and they go, wow, how do they do it with this? They have so few resources. And look at me, I've got so many resources. That was the beginning of 21 years now of Leaders Quest. Lindsay took that to Africa, to India, to China, Brazil. And when we went public in genomic health, I uh, trans and, you know, kind of transferred part of my time into being a partner in Leaders Quest and just continued to take those learning journeys, which we call quests, you know, around the world. I think that's an incredibly valuable model. One of the ways that you and I are very similar is in the work that I've done. I've worked on both the for-profit side, the not-for-profit side, and government, military, is the lessons that are learned in all of those different spheres are so useful and valuable when cross-pollinated. So oh, yeah. true, the for-profit leaders can learn a lot from the non-profit leaders and vice versa. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things we found was that, you know, the world's moving so fast. But when we started with Leaders Quest, there was a real, there was a tremendous chasm between large nonprofits like Oxfam, for example, and multinational companies, which we were working with. And today, that chasm has really closed. There's now a lot, lot more cooperation. And, and I would say we've been part of that wave to bring the bridging of those that division together. Fantastic. We said earlier, I mentioned earlier when I was covering your bio that your company that you put together, uh, the Genomic Health Company, that the Denison Organizational Culture Survey, that you guys were in the top 1% there. And I'm very familiar with that instrument. Other people may or may not be familiar, but the Denison Organizational Culture Survey measures cultural variables and your organization gets a score and it's actually difficult to score in the top 1%. So how did you do that, Gene? What was the secret success formula? Oh, I, you know, that's a great question. You know, in, in some ways you just think we were so fortunate to have outstanding people. And I mean, part of that is, is your hiring process. I mean, I say it always starts with the leader. And so uh, Randy Scott, who is our CEO, was just, he's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant in so many ways, technical ways and scientific ways and business ways. He attracted three other people, and I was the fourth in terms of five co-founders, uh, who were just, they were top of their game. And then our hiring process was to get people who were attracted to people who were at the top of their game. So uh, that's part of the deal. Uh, another part of the deal was that one of our core values was truth-seeking. And so we recognize that in a, in a scientific community, truth-seeking has a particular quality to it. And so people already had resonance with that. But we generated that across the entire culture. We wanted the truth. So that's part of this idea about getting your voice out, getting the ideas on the table, best ideas win, be open to negotiate where it appears that your view is maybe not the best view for the day and be willing to allow that uh, to be heard and then decide mutually together how, how to go forward. So I would say that that was a major piece of it. 
I think the organizational systems we put in place in terms of benefits and processes were really important. We were as transparent as we could be with uh, where we were, with the kind of feedback we gave. Um, we integrated our values into our performance management uh, processes. That was another thing, saying these are important. These are not just something you hang on the wall. They're actually, you know, they're important to our success. And the other thing I would say is, is working in Silicon Valley is, is a unique experience in that it's very much about innovation and about taking it to the next level, uh, which I love. I mean, that, that's kind of part of my passion. So let's take it to the next level. Great. You know, so you're starting to, you've been talking about the success factor. So I was also thinking about the flip side of the coin, which is how can an executive leader know that maybe they have some culture problems? What are the signs that a culture isn't working very well? Great question. You know, I would say not everybody has this kind of sensitivity uh, in the managerial world, but I would say that the energy in the space is tangible. And so if you have the kind of energy where people, people who are your customers, people who are your partners and your vendors, they walk in and they comment on, wow, this is a special place. And you haven't done anything to prompt that. They just spontaneously say it. That is a key signal that your culture is working well. And vice versa. You know, you walk in and you see people and you go, okay, this, this is a bit heavy here. You know, they come in and, and maybe you're having a team meeting or something and people kind of are eager to get out of the meeting and get back to doing what they want to do. They want to kind of put them, you know, kind of isolate themselves and stuff like that. So that's one thing is the contrast between the energy of a, of a really dynamic culture. You want to be, you want to go in the morning, you, you know, and uh, you don't mind doing the extra work that's required to really be successful. And I would say in terms of our cultures, the ones I've worked with is we really emphasize not overworking. We emphasize working smart. And I think that's another piece of, of what really great leaders and managers do is they, they equip their staff to uh, function to the best of their ability, but they don't force them into overwork. Mm, that's an important one, because I think in today's world, a lot of organizations probably would not get a passing score on that one. Absolutely. <laughs> Work-life balance. I, yeah, I'm working with one right now, which is just, they're a super organization. They're doing great work, have a great reputation, and they know that their employees and their staff are on the edge of burnout. And they know it's because they're, they're demanding so much. And it's not any individual, it's actually the system itself. And so one thing I would say is systems have personality. They have, they have a life of their own. It gets beyond, even though your CEO is the, and, your, and your senior team and your board are the most influential individuals, when the system takes on a character of its own, you've got to address the system. And that is right now, part of the work in that organization. That is a huge observation because a lot of times the interventions in organizations are at the individual level when the problem yeah. is really a system problem. So I think it's important that you mention that and good people can get trapped in systems that are ineffective and therefore Absolutely. they can't be productive. They can't really bring their best work forward because the system becomes a barrier or an impediment. So this reminds me of another question I want to ask you, Gene, because 
I know that you believe in system transformation. So <laughs> tell us a little bit about how you achieve the system transformation in organizations and how is transformational change different from just any other kind of change process that's out there? Yeah, so I mean, the key to transformational change is a change of identity. This is at multiple levels. At an individual level, if you want to make personal transformation, it only happens when you integrate a new identity which addresses whatever that problem that you're facing is. And we have multiple, and personally, we have, we have multiple core identities. I would just say that my model, if you will, is there's, there's what I call the essential self and that essential self gets expressed in core identities, and core identities generate best self-behavior. Now, we can have worse self-behavior as well, right? And that's often when there's confusion around your core identity. When you're able to, to sort that out and commit to that, that singular core identity around whatever it is, then you start to have very clear and congruent communication messages etc. Same thing is true in your team, same thing is true in your organization. So you go, what is the essential self of the organization? If we're talking about systems and organization, and what are the core identities of that organization? And typically, those core identities are organized around values. So for example, I worked with Genetic Alliance, which is a nonprofit. And it, well, when I began working with them, they, it was a patient advocacy group that was empowering parents with children of rare disease. And the work that we did collectively there was actually to create an organization where the absolute core value and core identity was openness. I mean, everything in that organization was organized around openness. And so, for example, the for hiring practices, they would put it right on the table. I mean, and so you would have a hiring manager interviewing someone and they would that interviewer would explain how the culture worked and then put it back to the potential candidate as to what was their perspective on when they walked in the door? What was their perspective when they met the CEO? What, was, what happened? What was your experience of this? And say, why are you asking me that? He said, well, because we're open and we want that kind of information to be shared freely you know, the thing about making mistakes or failing in some way, there's no such thing as failure. It's feedback. So we're here to support you in your success. And that kind of culture transformed that organization. The CEO is amazing, Sharon Terry. She is just absolutely amazing uh, leader. She embodied that level of openness and therefore the organization could take it on. And as a consequence, they moved from 600 patient advocacy organizations to a network of 10,000 organizations that were working. It was just really transformational in that their identity became openness. We are open. It's not that we act openly, it's we are open. That's what I call an identity statement. The identity statements are not identity. Identity is who we are, and therefore we see that through how we behave which is the core identity. And that openness that they demonstrate, I would call best self-behavior. Yeah, this is great. I'm thinking about how the Bible defines God is love, not oh, yeah. just that God is loving or engages in loving right. behavior, but God is love, is core identity. And what you're saying is that any transformation means there's a change in who you are 
and you're aligning who you are with who you want to be, like where you're going and how you show up in the world, so to speak. And so there's a sense of alignment, there's a sense of unity. And again, the same story with the vision where people are on the same page and they can relate to it. That's something that increasingly is showing up in my work is this whole idea that you are love. It's surprising to me. When I started my career, you just did not use that word. But it is true that the alignment is actually alignment with God's absolute truths. That is what creates the greatest culture. So you have a culture that loves one another as that's being best self-behavior. You have a culture that speaks truth. You have a culture that's filled with joy. You have a, an atmosphere where there's peace. You know, I was talking about the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5. Great cultures manifest those behaviors and experiences. Love the way you characterize that and put it in that frame so that we can understand it from a, a spiritual point of view as well. Gene, I know that one of your roles was at Procter & Gamble, and you had to create a clothes washing process that worked oh, yeah. with less water for the women of Kenya and these women had to travel for miles just to get water. And so you were being very innovative in how you did this. So what strategies did you use to get to an innovative solution? Well, I mean, that's interesting. And that, that, that was a Leaders Quest quest that we took to Kenya. And this was the, uh, the product group that was tasked with doing this. And part of it comes out of this value about our responsibility as stewards of the environment, we very much feel, and they did too, that they had a responsibility. So those women in developing countries, particularly the much poorer countries and Kenya, the, the rural parts of Kenya being part of that, they would use like five buckets of water to clean their clothes. Well, when you have to walk five kilometers to get your bucket of water, that means that for the women of those villages, they basically spent their life trying to, to get water and trying to keep their family going. Um, and so the, the goal was, how do we get it down to one bucket of water? I would say the single most significant aspect of that work that we did was we created an environment where the team, the Procter & Gamble team, could experience the women themselves, could go on that walk with the woman. So it was like it became an embodied reality of what they were doing. So the transformation that they were bringing in their products was not simply let's make more money or let's sell more product. It was actually let's touch people's lives. And, you know, sometimes in business you hear people talk about it, but you can tell they don't really know what they're talking about. These guys, when they left, they knew what they're talking about. They were willing to walk a mile in the shoes of these ladies, so to speak, so that they could experience and learn, I mean, truly the learning journey that you were creating was experiential in nature. It's not just oh, yeah. learning, it's not book learning. They're having an experience, they're living the life with the people, and they're saying, how can we make the experience better for them? Yeah, Even that's what right. we know that they have to deal with every day. Yeah, that's right. And that's that really is what Leaders Quest was and is. It's creating experiential learning and, and we, because we know that adult learning is experiential. It's having the experience and then it's reflecting on that experience. One of the things that in our busy, busy, busy world we have today, you know, oftentimes managers 
don't take the time to reflect. I had a a one-on-one call today with the guy that I'm working with, and he is super, super talented, operational guy, you know, $600 million company. He's new in the job. And I I asked him, I said, do you take time to reflect? And he said, oh, yeah, I I do. I I journal myself. And, you know, and so he's, he's very creative about his own work. But I said, what about the people who report to you? Do you stop at the end of a meeting with them and say, what is your takeaway? And what was your experience of this time together? And he said, I never even thought about that. You go, how is that possible? You do it for yourself and you're not thinking about for your the people you're working with. But it's, it is what happens. It's like we don't always generalize what works for us to the larger uh, context. And I think you're bringing up another point as well. We can have experiences and having the experience alone, absent the reflection, you leave a lot on the table. Because oh, it's unexplored, absolutely. you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's really an important point you just made as well. So say a little bit more, Gene, about why innovation is critical in today's business climate. Oh, my goodness. The speed of change today is if you don't innovate, you are left behind. Innovation keeps you on the cutting edge. And one of the things that I'm very passionate about is how do I stay ahead of the curve? which is actually, that was one of our values in genomic health of staying ahead of the curve. It's like, you know, in, in genomic health, we brought the first genomic application to market. This was way back when the human genome was just being finished and genomics was not anywhere where it is today. But it was personalizing medicine so that oncologists, in the research we did showed that 32% of oncologists changed their treatment plans because they had access to this data that we were able to generate. Well, that meant that people who would have gotten chemotherapy didn't get it. And people who needed chemotherapy but wouldn't have gotten it, got it. So, I mean, that's that's an example of innovation that's saying we're ahead of the curve and by being ahead of the curve and because we were people focused, we are serving people to have you know, a more fulfilled life and a, a, a better experience. You know, I was thinking about the work that you were doing in Kenya with the whole thing of the clothes washing experience. And there could be a competitor company that just says, we're going to do this. We're going to do it this way. And you take it or leave it, so to speak. And by personalizing it, you actually create a more loyal constituency base because they know that the product is designed for them and works better for them than just what's off the shelf. That's exactly right. And I mean, that, that actually is the case. I mean, there are other companies that compete with Procter & Gamble on that very same market. When you're a first mover, you actually, that's a tremendous advantage in a commercial sense. Wonderful. I know this is going to be a dangerous question. And let me preface that. And I'm looking for a short answer of application. I've been intrigued by what you've been saying about the personalized aspect of medicine. So if we think about this COVID period that we've just come through, and we think about the rollout of the vaccines in such a way that there was not really a personalization, if you will, what comments would you have about that process and where we are today maybe as a result of it? Well, first thing is you're absolutely right. It was one size fits all. And it's very clear the research subsequent to the rollout has shown that there are different cohorts of people. So for example, the 
young children, there's almost zero uh, possibility of them having serious complications from COVID. Many of them had COVID. So a size that would fit an elderly population does not fit those children. And yet our public health authorities have kind of mandated that across the board as if one size fits all. I think that is a mistake on the part of our public health authorities. The thing is, the truth will show, the truth will be revealed. And the research that's being done is revealing some of the limitations there. If you see, for example, uh, myocarditis on young men, they're not paying attention to adverse effects of myocarditis. And yet, what they found is even people who've taken the vaccine have some measure of heart implication if they don't have myocarditis. They don't have to be young men. So this is something that wasn't known. And there's the other thing I would say is just, we really have to look very seriously at the, at the companies that are doing this. They have a track record of not always being the most ethical companies. And, you know, Pfizer tried to hide the data for 75 years. And as that data has come out, you know, I think there's some very real concerns about it uh, and about the implications of it for our public health. So I think that we are in a position now, and I think particularly as Christians who know how to pray and who know how to hear God's voice, we need to hear God and understand what it means to stand up for truth and righteousness. This is not about judgment. It's just simply about let's do what's right for the people. I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier about values, because our behavior emanates from the values that we have. And so if you really deeply care about people and outcomes, and you want to help people get to optimal health, that's going to cause different behavior than if you have maybe some other values, maybe at the core of what you're doing. So thank you for sharing, you know, that perspective on COVID. I know the show is not about that and you weren't expecting me to ask anything about it. However, it was relevant to what you were saying about personalized medicine. And so certainly wanted you to weigh in on it. I think it is, I think it is relevant for today. And you talk about, about what's happening in larger culture. I think that, we have a responsibility as Christians to not simply accept what we're being told by, for example, the media. You know, media has an agenda to, to sell product. And, you know, we recognize that, but it doesn't mean that they always are telling the truth. So I think understanding that we have responsibility to think these things through to and to trust ourselves, uh, not just simply to kind of displace that trust onto authority figures who may or may not be be accurate. And one of the other parts you mentioned about the prayer piece, understanding that really know God, you're getting omniscient information from the source of omniscience beyond what humans alone can think about. And so we don't want to minimize the value of that kind of information as well. Oh, yeah. Absolutely right. That's absolutely right. I know that you have a concept that you focus on that's called the structure of subjective experience. Tell us about that. What is this concept all about? I love, I, I love it. It's the, thing that, it's the thing that is kind of foundational for all of my work. I didn't know it, but I fell in love with structure when I met this neuro-linguistic programming, which is really sophisticated communication technology interpersonal technology. And 
we define in NLP, we define that work as the study of the structure of subjective experience. And the basic idea is, it's kind of like what Elon Musk says about uh, learning from first principles. You know, it's like going to the core of any behavior, you can find the structure of that behavior. So for example, if you think about the word anticipate, what can you know when you hear that word? Well, one thing you know is that it is orienting you to the future, right? Whereas if you, if you hear somebody talk about regret, you know they're orienting to the past. So those are structural components, right? And, you know, for people who, who are used to doing Myers-Briggs or other personality tests like that, they're giving you structural components. For example, in the Myers-Briggs, there, there are four categories. And, and one of those is perceiving and judging. Perceiving is open-ended and judging is closure-based. If you know that about a person and you see that they're open-ended, you know a whole ton of things without them having to tell you something. That's what makes this particular methodology so powerful because there's the key question about structure of experience is what has to be true in order for this to be the case, right? And so we're getting back to truth again. I, I love this idea that God is the source of all patterns, right? So God is truth. Jesus is truth. And so, okay, then what has to be true in our everyday life? There will be truth in our everyday life because God is, is truth and therefore he created what he created is filled with truth. So what has to be true in order to understand that? So for me, that is just so powerful to be able to use that filter in listening to people. Because when you listen with that depth, you actually understand them oftentimes better than they understand themselves. Oh, absolutely. What's an example of how you might use this conceptualization in a practical way? Give us a picture of it played out somewhere. Okay. Yeah. So I have a friend, she's just, her kids have just kind of flown the nest. She and her husband are celebrating an empty nest. And as part of that for her, she decided she was going to go on a three-week quest to the Himalayas. And it was just something, she, she loves that physical challenge. She loves, you know, kind of stretching herself. Well, I was really curious to, to hear about that trip. And so I began, you know, we had a phone call and I, I began asking her about the trip. One of the things that she was talking about was she was saying, you know, that last day before we, we summited, we had to get up at like four o'clock in the morning because we had to be on the summit before the winds came. And then we had is something like an eight or 10 hour trek down the hill. So we had to get down. So there was this very tight window, right? And so, you know, I was just asking her, you know, what was that like? Was in my head was what, what had to be true for you to be able to take that day, that specific day, which was the most difficult day of her entire trip. What had to be true for you to make that? Because it's no thing. You're, you're at 15,000 feet and the air is, you know, oxygen is low, air is thin. And how do you do that? Her answer, which is, this is a structural answer. She said, early on in the, in the trip, I was feeling terrible. I had a headache. I was dehydrated. I learned from the, the, the guide, uh, the, the chief guide. He said, oh, it's going to be okay. You're just dehydrated. And she said, she, she got rehydrated. She realized he, he was right. But he said, you know, the physical climbing is not the deal here. 
it's a mental strength you need to do this. And she told me it's mental strength that got me to the top of that summit. I physically just struggled, but I had it mentally. And I said, I am strong. I can do anything. I am strong. I can do anything. She got herself to the top because of her mental strength. Now, you wouldn't necessarily know that if you just heard a story of climbing up the Himalayas, but it is true. And so in order to understand her experience, I had to understand the importance of mental strength. And then we were talking later on and I just, she just said, oh man, that's a mountain to climb. I say, yeah, you already have. And that's a metaphor, which is a structural component. She just cracked up laughing because it totally blew out all her excuses. You know, I've, I've already done the tough stuff. I had the mental strength. This is nothing. This is nothing. That's a great example. And it's a way of identifying resources sometimes that we don't realize are resources at our disposal or that we could use. And especially if we're looking at physical strength as the resource, and really we may need to overcome with something right. that's mental or spiritual or in another realm. <laughs> so that's oh, for sure. Well, I, th I think the spiritual resources are, are the essence of, of our strength. I mean, there's no question about that. Well, I'm glad you said that because I want to ask you about your faith journey. Take us back to even when you were growing up, when you were young, what was your life like? I know you went through a phase and a period in your life where maybe you weren't so happy with God. Tell us about that <laughs> and how you got from that space to a different space. <laughs> That's an understatement. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I grew up in a Christian family. I mean, my parents were... Uh, well, my grandparents actually founded the church that we grew up in. My dad was head of the, the uh, Sunday school. We had a thousand kids in Sunday school when he was there. Uh, my mom did every single thing in the church. She was on every committee. Christian education was her thing. So I had a lot of that grounding. The one thing I would say is I did not have an experience of Jesus. I had not met Jesus personally. And my dad died when I was 12. And that was really the crisis of my life. And I just got so angry at God. I just kind of rejected God and said, I can't believe in God that would you know, take my dad and you know, leave me in this terrible emotional black hole. And it was just awful. And so it was quite a struggle for, oh, I would say, you know, 13, 14 years before I actually realized I could start changing myself. And that was actually prior to meeting Jesus. But I started therapy. I got trained in transactional analysis. I met neuro-linguistic programming. Um, I was learning tools and models to change my, my internal world emotionally. I still was really bereft spiritually. But then um, I had this epiphany that, okay, I didn't know at the time, but I would say God, uh, God the Father kind of came and met me one night in, in uh, my dreams. And I knew I'm ready to get married. I'd been married before, and um, that, was, that was a disaster because I was a disaster. Very short-lived, and it just didn't work. I feel sorry about that for my ex-wife and for myself, actually. But uh, I had this epiphany. I'm ready to get married. And so I was on my way and, and, uh, to Europe because I was working in Europe at the time. Living in New York City, but working in Europe. I was looking, but I couldn't find anyone. And then uh, I uh, went to Copenhagen, and that's where I met my wife. 
her mother uh, was the founder of Women's Aglow in Denmark. Women's Aglow at that time was a global ministry to women at a time when women did not have, I mean, they still have a need of voice, but they did not have a voice in the church, particularly in Denmark. And so this was an organization that gave women the spiritual atmosphere where they could prophesy, they could pray for healing and see people physically healed, learn how to worship in a powerful ways. And so with that experience and with Benedicta and all my wife who, who, uh, had, who became a Christian after I met her, uh, that was striking. I got introduced to the lived experience of who Jesus is. And so the encounters with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, totally, I'm totally transformation, it transformed my life. And, you know, the recognition that that transformation gets to unfold over time, over years, and ever, ever growing capacity of relationship with the one who counts. And so that journey continues to until today. Well, yeah, sanctification is lifelong until we leave the planet, if you will. Absolutely. Let me ask you a little bit more because you had been going through this period of darkness, so to speak, where you were angry oh, yeah. with God. And then God appears to you in this dream. Say a little bit more about how you knew that this was a pivotal moment. What was different in terms of your relationship to God or your experience of something greater about God than what you had known when you were growing up? Well, what I would say is that the epiphany, which what I'm calling it, is I know that I know that I know. Um, I didn't know Jesus. I didn't know it was God. I just knew that I knew I was ready to get married. And I, I'd never been more certain about something than I was in that moment. And there was no prospect on the horizon, right? And so, like, it means I have to go and, and find that person, you know, or God's got to bring them to me or something. I don't know. And I would say that is what happened. And it took me another year and a, and a quarter to actually commit to the Lord. And so I did that. When I met the Lord, I was hungry for God. And so one example, I went to a conference in the UK, met a, a pastor, a teacher, and used his, at that time, audio series to just to really ground myself in the Bible. I met a guy there who was spirit-filled. He invited me in the next conference to come and visit with him and his small group of men. They prayed for me, and I had the most incredible experiences, kind of golden flow of the Holy Spirit filling me. And it was just like, never had an experience like that. And it was just like one thing after another of those kinds of experiences were just knowing the reality of God. Yeah, so what I'm hearing in that is the very beginning was like a revelation that, of course, is not connected to any facts that make sense in terms of getting married and not having a person on the scene at the moment. And then just more continued deepening of the relationship and deepening of the experience of God in ways that were profound. That's what I'm hearing you describe. So, Gene, let me pivot that a little bit. And let's talk about the fact that it's challenging in today's world, and particularly in the business world, to really be a Christian sometimes. So how do you express your faith at work? Well, I, I come back to this idea that, that I shared a little bit earlier, which is that, that all patterns begin with God. So, for example, in Leader's Quest, early on in Leader's Quest, I wrote 
the probably the original white paper around culture. And in that white paper, I talked to the to the other partners in the organization. And one of the themes was transformation. I mean, I, I think that that was something God gave me. You know, I've, I've had it since I began my professional career. But transformation as being, uh, if you think of it as a pattern, and think of it as a pattern from God, that pattern gets manifest in the salvation experience. So when I met God and gave my life to Jesus, that was a transforming experience. My identity was absolutely, you know, totally changed. I became a new creation in Christ. I mean, that's the scriptural statement, but that was the reality for me, was that I truly felt I am a new creation. And my life changed, my behavior changed, a lot of things changed that I didn't consciously choose to change. They just changed. Like, for example, I learned forgiveness. And it made perfect sense to me. I've been taught forgiveness my whole life, but I didn't know it. I learned it after I said yes to the Lord. So living it out in the business, in, in, in the business world, in the marketplace, I see it as pre-evangelism. For example, if you think about love, love is a, can be a pattern. The source of that love is God himself, who is love, right? Well, you don't have to talk about God, you don't have to preach God, you don't have to preach salvation in order to love people. When I show up with his love in people's lives, they know that they know that they know that something happened. I had a client just the other day who said to me, when I first saw you, I knew that I could trust you and that you were love. This person is not a Christian. She came to me and said, I want to change. Will you work with me? And so we did. In one hour, she transformed. Her identity transformed. And I, it's not that she became a Christian. It's not that kind of thing at all. But something really essential to who she was, and that was her relationship with her mother. She forgave her mother. And it was like a spontaneous thing. It wasn't like something me telling her to do. It was just something she did. Uh, and there were a series of things like that that she did. And she's in, the, she's in the business world. You know, I see this as us being sometimes agents of healing. And Absolutely. because of the flow of God that comes through us, the healing passes through and goes to the people that we encounter in the workplace. They may not even understand the source of the healing, whatever the impasse or block has been for a period of time, but they get to a transformed place as a result of that deep relationship encounter. Yeah. I've had people in my training programs who actually have met the Lord by modeling me, me not preaching to him, me not talking about you. They've simply become Christians because they got, if you will, the Holy Spirit used me as an exemplar and they became Christians, which is quite powerful. That's extremely powerful. So I know our time is winding down, Gene. So I want you to be able to tell people about your books and also how they can reach you. Yeah, so uh, I've got a got a book called Leadership Expectations, which is uh, is really an analysis of uh, senior leadership at the University of the Nations Kona, which is Youth with the Missions uh, training arm, and it really is understanding from a structural perspective how leadership's expectations generate uh, response in uh, their followers 
and the way that we in that case um, structured our senior leadership in the university and then, and that was just like it, it was a development of my phd uh, that i did got two other ebooks um which are much more uh models and tools they're on amazon five practices for transforming your life and work and three keys to transformation or something like that i forget anyway they're they're on amazon uh they're short reads they're uh they're filled with stories that illustrate these tools identity identification presupposition conceptual mapping um, these are some of the concepts that are there and that are illustrated also i just recommend going to linkedin i think it'd be in the show notes um, i've got a number of articles there and i'm working right now uh on what i'm calling 10x uh, which is how do you get outside your comfort zone and, and uh, exponentially create impact in the world that's work that is not yet published but will be um, hopefully soon um, my email is gene.early at gmail.com people are free to reach out if they like is there anything else that's it and we will have all of those things in the show notes gene so thank you for letting people know how they can reach you and also how they can reach these resources that you have created so what words of wisdom do you want to leave now for my audience of corporate executives first of all you are a leader as a leader, it starts on the inside. Ideally, if you meet Jesus, you are going to be a better leader because you start to model him because he's the ultimate leader. But your behavior shapes the responses of everybody who follows you. And so if you transform your behavior and the identity associated with it, you will transform your organization. And that is the key diagnostic I use in working with organizations is whatever you see out there, that's a mirror to you of who you are. You are responsible for that. So if you're responsible for that, you have control and authority over that to change yourself and therefore to transform your organization and make it a place where people love to be. Thank you, Gene, for saying that, because, you know, the book I wrote is Lead Yourself First, and it kind of goes right along with what you're saying. If we really want to have an impact and transform, it starts with us. And so often, executive leaders will point the finger out there, my people, they're the problem. You got to start with yourself. Yeah, start with yourself. Reminding us of that. And thank you for being with me today. Oh, yeah, it's been a joy. Thank you. All right. So what we'll do today is we're going to close today's segment with a Bible verse that comes from 2 Corinthians, the third chapter, and it's verse 18. And it says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. So just remember we go from glory to glory because of God's transformation process. It's by his spirit. So walk in the spirit today and have a wonderful and blessed day. Terrence Chapman is the president and CEO of Victorious Family, an organization committed to family discipleship and transformation. Today, He's here to talk about a special celebration event taking place on the 19th of April. Terrence, tell us all about it. So good to be here. You know, do you think the family is in crisis? Well, on April the 19th at the World of Coca-Cola here in Atlanta, Georgia, we're offering a very distinct experience, dinner and gala. We're going to have great speakers. 
great entertainment, great celebrities will be there, but more importantly, we'll be casting a vision around family transformation and what it could look like in your home. Join us April 19th at the World of Coca-Cola here in Atlanta, Georgia. And what's great, Terrence, about what you're saying, this is for all of us, those of us in business, those of us in pastoral leadership, those of us in family leadership, you want all of us there. All of those who have a family or part of a family, you're invited. All right. So give us the website information where people can go to sign up. Go to victoriousfamily.org slash take the next step. Excellent. See you there. See you there. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.